0: Airport travel, have you
1: have you talked about it? Uh, yeah, surprisingly good. Um, okay. Because uh, the main thing was that because I've been meditating a lot in the past few months, um, I was not bored. And because I wasn't bored, I could like... Um, so the main thing was I was a bit upset, so I just had some wholesome books to read. And then when I finished the wholesome books, I was just like, well, I'm just going to sit and breathe. And that was fine. <laughs>
2: oh, it's amazing! Congratulations. Yeah. You
1: Wait made it. For, you know, like a, you know, two 12-hour flights, uh, that's quite unusual. I'm um, quite the, enjoying this. I'm trying to keep this up in London, but London has way more distractions than a plane. Um, yeah. Like, trying not to look at the ads and trying not to look at all that stuff, um, or trying not to get distracted by it, basically.
3: Mm-hmm. Because
1: you only look at an ad on the tube when you're bored.
3: <laughs> yeah, sort of, yeah.
1: They're right. very convenient the
3: to grab attention.
1: Yeah, they they have the ads because people are so bored that they can't even sit with their own breath or their own thoughts for like a few seconds.
0: It's true. That's
1: and it's true. like, oh, they're just like not looking. You know, they, they can't stand to look at the person in front of them on the escalator, so they have to look left and right, and no, oh, there's the ads. Mm hmm. So um, I'm quite enjoying uh, this new setting of trying to just remain present and not get too distracted. And obviously you can be present with an ad, but why would you want to be? Because it's not very wholesome.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Especially since the intention of the ad is to want you to want something. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's 100 percent it. You can do other things with the ad, and one of the things you can do is look at the artwork. Because often, uh, ads, uh, uh, billboard ads, etc., like that, are intentionally artistic to catch the eye.
0: Yeah.
4: In order to subconsciously get you to want something, but you can just enjoy their art.
0: I just, I just watched your interview about the industrial psychology too, and it was, it was excellent. It was definitely insightful.
4: Debbie, when we turned the video recorder on, you were asking a question. Can you ask that question again?
3: Yes. Yeah, so in relation to what you said uh, prior to that, you said um, vows and oaths are more likely to be assumed to be an ordinary people thing, whereas enlightened beings do not really consider vows and oaths to be uh, something spiritually, maybe higher on, on the hierarchy. Is that what you said?
4: Yes, that's yeah. basically how you could say it. That you could yeah. say that, in fact, that we can think of it as staircase or stair step ladders.
2: Yeah. So, and my that there
4: are is- min- right. And so, there's kind of various stages of mm-hmm. enlightenment, as you were. Um, or various steps along the path and that we can also uh, understand that ladder then or that staircase that we're talking about is part of that ladder is submerged and that above the water would be then the noble stages above that and then the lower part underwater would be the various stages of noble excuse of of ordinary life Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. and at the bottom baseline would be absolute wrong view which right. can be stated as i can get away with anything
2: yeah right oh,
4: i can get so, away with it that that's yeah. the baseline so that's kind of the bottom of the pool that you don't get much lower than absolute far out a criminal mm-hmm. who knows that he can get away with any criminal activity that he cares to engage in
2: mhm yeah
4: okay We've had leaders like that throughout history. That when they say absolute power absolutely corrupts, what we're talking about is it takes one down to the very lowest quality of humanity. And Mm -hmm. so this is the baseline. And the rest of society, how do we deal with people who are at that lowest level is try to make boundaries upon them?
3: Yeah
4: all right and so uh those boundaries sometimes if this guy is so strong and so powerful and so harmful and causes so much suffering then people have to organize together to Mm -hmm. put a stop to it and there's various ways that that can happen one is to try to undermine his support In other words, we can teach, we can talk to on an individual level uh, individuals who are in his army to try to convince them to leave his army Mm -hmm. so as to not make him so powerful Yeah. or there's underground uh, maneuvers and all kinds of stuff that we can have. But this is basically where all of this stuff gets started is an argument between ordinary right view and wrong view. And the yeah. ordinary right view uh, is basically stating to this ordinary wrong view of you cannot get away with it.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: You can't get away with it. Yeah, We're going to make sure you can't get away with it. We're going to undermine your troops. We're going to raise our own forces. We're going to hire policemen in case of individual or, or family mobsters or if it's a whole nation. We're going to build a nuclear weapon, but we're going to prove to you that you're not going to get away with it.
3: Right. I so think that more intrusive in fact- intervention for them, would you okay. say?
4: So okay. So this is the basis for war. This is the basis for police. This is the basis then for armies and things like this. Is the uh, those who have an ordinary right view that have a kind of an awakening in the sense that they know the difference between right and wrong.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: And then we're having to deal with a whole bunch of people who do not care about the distinction between right and wrong. They're only caring about themselves and how they can survive or how they can gain advantage and whatnot like that. Now, here's the kicker in all of this. Each one of us, every one of us inside is a mixture of these two stages. Yeah. At various points, sometimes we feel like a nut and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we think we can get away with it and sometimes we say, you're not going to get away with it. Yeah. And then sometimes the answer to that is, yes, I can get away with it. And we have these internal wars and dialogues between this wrong view and this ordinary right view. This is the basis then for your question that we need to straighten out that there's a couple of these steps that are absolutely below water low water level and so uh they're in a conflict with each other and that ultimately the uh, ordinary right view uh brings in the big guns because they're not winning with police and armies and whatnot like that that sure. they're they're winning by bringing in the big guns religions priests mm-hmm. gods Okay, if we can't uh, teach you that you can get away with it because they can say, well, I can get away with it. And then they'll say, oh, the other time we'll say, no, when you die, we'll Mm -hmm. get you then. (laughs) Ultimately, you're not going to get away with it. Yeah. Okay, this is where the idea of Ten Commandments come from. That ultimately the authority is there, except that going back to that word authorities, is ultimate authorities are just as corrupt as ordinary power.
3: <laughs> so yep. corrupt. So exactly. kind of using the guilt and shame um, strategies to regulate behavior at that point when it's When the negative attitude, I mean, wrong attitude have gone too far past the boundaries and past the baseline, I would say. Do you think?
4: Well, yes. What you're talking about is all of the psychological tools that we didn't mention. First, we were talking about physical. Mm -hmm. But basically, even when we're getting into talking about religion and commandments, now we're introducing the issue of fear. Yeah. Which is much more of a psychological issue. Yeah. And then being a good psychologist, you bring in its friends. Fear has a friend. Guilt, remorse, yeah. rebellion.
2: resentment. Okay. all of that.
4: Exactly. All of that stuff comes into play when we try to control other people's behavior.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: We can only do it by enticing them or promising them something which hooks into their greed. Yeah, or we can frighten them or give them an option of uh, punishment. Okay. doesn't this sound strikingly similar to the Buddha's understanding of the second noble truth, the cause of suffering?
3: Yeah,
4: (laughs) yeah, I was going to say it
3: sounds more like at that point. um, All of these strategies are targeted at the survival level being. You know, to to use fear would be to utilize that automatic processing whereby people when they try to do something, they automatically feel guilty and will stop and, you know, not engage in that behavior.
4: In fact, there are various societies that have grown up or various civilizations that have foundations. Very similar to what we were talking about. In fact, what we can say is, is that the old Mediterranean culture that still exists, but it doesn't exist completely around the Mediterranean, but the southern and the eastern and into Greece and whatnot like that, especially places like, um, excuse me, um, Algeria, Morocco, um, uh, Tunisia, that area, Algeria. Around the Mediterranean, as far and also into the east, has a different culture than we have in the West. In the West, we can define our culture as a guilt-ridden culture, and in the Mediterranean culture is an is an honor culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, and so people uh, have to behave in order to save face in the community. All right. So basically what we can say then is, is that uh, in the Pali, there are two words, Harry and Opata. Harry and Opata can be seen as different in the sense, uh, by the way, these are traits for ordinary people to to understand and to learn. So this is kind of a basic or a child's teaching of in Buddhism is Harry is embarrassment or shame, and uh, opata is guilt, which is completely different. Yeah. All right. But you can look at it. Here we go within with this honor society is built upon honor, which means I can do anything that I want to do so long as I don't get caught at it. Yeah. To Where in the guilt system, the guilt means is that all I have caught myself and now I have to punish myself in the hopes that then they won't punish me. Right. This is why we say I'm sorry when we make an apology. Apologies can be made without you feeling sorry. Mm-hmm. But in fact, in the Thai language the word is ko tut. And that's a very interesting word that way, because the word tut is your hind side, your backside, the butt. And co is to beat. So please beat me is basically how they apologize in Thai language, which is exactly upside down from the way that they say it in America. I'm sorry, which means I have already beaten myself.
3: Yeah. And and that's the difference between collectivist and individualist society, where um, I'm sorry means I, I have taken care of my problem. But in Bali, uh-huh. in, in Thailand, it's more like, Yeah, I have made a made an error and I deserve the consequence from the society,
4: from the society. Exactly. And so one is communal. Yeah. And the other one is individualistic. One is capitalistic, the guilt society. And the other one is socialistic.
2: Yeah. So in mm-hmm.
4: a socialistic society, because they say khatoum when they're making an apology, and and you're left with capitalism and and rape, pillage, murder, and all the kinds of things that go along with the, with capitalism, because they have the word I'm sorry built mm-hmm. into it. In other words, I can get away with it if I say I'm sorry.
2: Right.
4: That's that's part of it. But the whole real point about being sorry, rather than saying you're sorry is uh that the guilt needs that you want to make up for it you want to have retribution you want in fact is it were um uh reconciliation all right because let's look at it in in another way is is that if two people in thailand have a really really blow up a great big argument let's say between the customer and the store the likelihood of that customer ever going back to that store is very remote. That once it's cut, once you have a great big explosion, it's gone. And you can see how that's in Buddhism in the sense of it, if it's dangerous, stay away from it. Okay, right. And so that relationship has become dangerous for both of them to stay away from it. In the West, the whole idea is, oh, no, Christianity teaches you to go and kiss and make up. Mm-hmm. Which means you've got to resolve the situation. Which mm-hmm. means that both parties have to have to see it. Guess what? We don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. And so now we're caught in the in the in the bind of: Do I just allow myself to just forget the whole thing and go about my wearing way, or am I going to be caught in? Do I have to go fix this thing that's broken?
3: And that's the root of conflict where a person doesn't feel like making up but is socially obligated to.
4: Precisely. there is often social obligations to kiss and make up. Now here in Thailand, they've got a uh, they've got a fallout, or they've got a backup to that. and mm-hmm. and you can say that that backup is grandma because this is a um, uh, a matriarchal society. And it is the grandmas that will go and patch things up between, say, his son and his dad, who happens to be the the dad is the son of grandma. Okay. And so she's got a vested interest in getting these guys back together. But in Thai culture, they don't have a vested interest in doing so. Mm Okay. Okay uh and so in thailand father and son if they have a blow up more than likely they're going to get put back together whether they want it or not and they're going to learn to get along with each other and get over it to where in the west because of this internal conflict father and son can be separated for a lifetime yeah and neither one of them is willing to give in and there's nobody that's going to come in and intervene
2: Mm. so that's
4: part of the difference in the society you know, and by the way, you can say, well, what about in the West? Why doesn't grandma come in? The answer to that is look at the women's status in Western society.
2: Right.
4: In, in Thailand, women are supposed to. They're on top. They're in charge. That's their job is to go patch things up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. So all of this is that foundation in there to that question that you were asking which has to do then that what happens then at that point in time, because a lot of people would think then that the staircase then has to do with whether someone is ordained or not, because it doesn't. That everyone, when they do ordain, ordains with one foot still in the water. Mm. They're still underwater, okay? But that's expected. In fact, you couldn't expect nobles who are already noble and already understand the Dhamma, they would only take refuge within the Dhamma for the sheer simplicity of having a place to hang out, because they already know how to hang out.
2: Uh-huh. yeah.
4: All right, so uh, everyone who joins the Sangha is, um, uh, let us say, an ordinary person. And we can define that ordinariness is in basically looking for magic. Everyone at an ordinary level is looking for magic and the nobility is the ones who have given up that search and are looking for something real now. Right. Okay. and so this is one of the ways of looking at what is the distinction between the noble and the um, ordinary people. As the ordinary people are still looking and locked in that conflict within themselves between ordinary view, right view, and their own wrong view. And we're Mm -hmm. caught in in uh, in a conflict between ourselves in that level. Surprisingly enough, Freud figured that out on his own. And labeled it and labeled it very well and very properly, but his labels were confusing to ordinary people. And so, Byrne came in and changed the terminology so that even idiots like us can figure it out.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and it's that
4: dialogue between the parent ego state yeah. and the child,
2: uh-huh. and
4: we can also understand it from the um, from various experiments and things like that that a child who has been raised by wolves, say, or in the wild, has Mm -hmm. wild characteristics, that humans are animals. We are wild. We are barbarians. We're out there for survival and for getting anything that we want at best we can. And civilization then is that superego, that parent ego state that comes in to socialize humans, Mm-hmm. based on the nesting instinct yeah that you because part of the self-preservation is is that we need to be in a nest in order for protection so mm-hmm. there's part of the internal conflict is the conflict between the nesting instinct and the uh self-preservation instinct so the the instincts have conflict built right into them. That's something a lot of people yeah. think. They think all what we need to do is just to get out of the uh, the instincts into our wisdom and see things for sure. No, actually, part of the situation is to also be wise enough to resolve the conflicts that we each have between our various instincts.
3: Right. And and it kind of matches with the develop, developmental um, stages of a child. So when they're capable, they are basically learning and, you know, uh, um, the, being socialized. So they are learning to set boundaries and define what's right or wrong. But by the time they are a young adult, they are capable of making conscious decisions. And that, that's why I think wisdom has such a high correl- correlation with experience and um, older age. So people are finally able to see that they don't need those boundaries anymore, or more likely the boundaries become um, less efficient for them.
4: Well, just let's look at that, because you just hit something extremely important. We can see the rules and the boundaries of society that are impressed upon a child Mm
2: -hmm.
4: very, very similar to things like uh, crutches yeah or uh, walking age maybe someone's holding your hand that in fact yeah. one of the ways that children actually learn to balance and walk is when mommy will reach out her hand just to hold the hand of the child so that the mm-hmm. child can use mom's hands and her steadiness in order to learn to walk rather than just stumble and fall and stumble and fall and stumble and fall okay yeah but as the child then learns how to walk, he wants to reject mom's hand, that that's all of the part of it. I can walk on my own right now. Thank you very much. And at other times, oh, I want mom's hand again.
3: Yeah. And and that may be the cause for, you know, this stage at where people kind of have this natural rebellion towards the shoulds, oughts or musts especially um, especially during I would say uh, teen adolescence that period when children are rebelling and they don't want to obey the authority figures
4: precisely so we can take that a little analogy of a child as they're growing up learning to walk and then both rejecting and clinging to mom's hand that back and forth that we have first we're yeah. afraid and then we want freedom, and then we're afraid again, and so we grab her hand again, etc. like that. This is exactly a, an excellent analogy for how we learn to deal with the other kinds of aids and assistances, or which we can call the rites, rules, and rituals.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: That by the time that we're adults, we can begin to see how things actually are and we don't have to follow the rules anymore. We can look at where we're going. Yeah. And that uh, it's all built upon safety. That in sense, sense, um, AI and having self-driving automobiles actually is humanity's... Bringing that into four, in other words, if you had an AI system of automobiles who had a whole bunch of rules, then that would be old software. In my day, when we wrote programs, we wrote rules.
2: Right? <laughs>
4: yeah. Now AI is different oh, yeah. software with different processing, and the AI is there to figure out, and they have very, very few rules.
2: In so, other words,
4: cars are not out there following traffic rules, they're following a different rule, and that is go as fast as you can and don't hit anything. Those are the only two rules you've got.
3: <laughs> yeah, that that highlights something very interesting, because what has changed for AI is that their learning ab- ability has increased exponentially, right? They're right now becoming more self-learning.
4: Guess so, what? Your, your self-learning can do the same thing when you get out of a rule-based mentality. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah that's what I was going to say. Maybe that is a
4: determinant. This is then the distinction. This is really excellent. This is then the distinction between ordinary right view that's rule-bound and noble right view, which is investigation. It's right. all about the investigation. And the Buddha figured this out 2,500 years ago. That it is wisdom, it's the investigation, it's the power of observation. It's the looking and looking and looking at things over and over again. And then we begin to see the territory like it is, and we know how to maneuver. We don't have to maneuver by a map or a set of rules or anything like that. We can actually see where we're going in life now.
2: Mm -hmm.
4: Which means that we're going to throw out all of the old rules, which the Buddha calls Sila Bhatta which is in fact the nesting instinct, and start operating from a wisdom instead of looking at what we're doing, looking at where we're going. I yes. have a question. yeah.
0: Can, can we go back to this? Uh, you mentioned that ordinary people see it as magic and noble people see it as reality or something like What's the statement exactly? Yes. Um, so, an example, I see that. I I see the synchronicity, for example. Something happens and I think it's magic or reality. Like, what's uh, Well,
4: what you can say is instead, isn't it marvelous (laughs) that you can wake up and see that things are almost like that we live in a, a giant clock? and that the gears turn in ratios, et cetera, like that, and things just happen that way. Many, many incidences. One is that I'll mention a song, and and the lady who's listening to me in a private conversation says, that particular song is on the record player right here. We just played it last night. Another example is I give an example of uh, liking what you're doing and talk about dishwasher, and the guy turns out immediately, Gushes, that he's a professional dishwasher. (laughs) <laughs> and this happens over and over and over again. Um, uh, recently, um, let's say it was last Saturday morning that I had a call uh, that had conflicted with the um, the timing of the uh, the Skype call that we do uh, Sangha UK. And when I finished that call and came on to uh, on to the Skype uh, US, Uh, Parker had just clicked the button to finish the call. And I saw him and he saw me, but the buttons had already been clicked and it was over. But that was enough for both of us to understand this is an instant of synchronicity. This is brilliant (laughs) because it only lasted one second. There was only one second that that could have happened. But I came on just as he was leaving. All right, but there's many, many things like that. Now, here's part of the problem. Is that the magic is, is that once we begin to open up and see how things are so interconnected, we get the idea that we can control it. If I only get this or that little skill, if I only get a little bit better in meditation, I'll figure out how I can, I can, I can fix it. I can control it. That's where magic comes in.
0: Okay, so you, you, you intentionally trying to project something.
4: Right, we start to project on it as I did it, or not look at that, but look at me.
0: Oh, I see. We turn
4: it into selfishness. That's the magic, that's the transition that is made. Um, and that um, it's based upon um, more wishful thinking than actual observation. The more we observe, the more we realize that there's so much of that synchronicity happens that all we could do is just be in awe of it.
0: This is the way you remove yourself out of it, just being, saying.
4: Just look at that, look at that, just wow, isn't that marvelous? Mm -hmm. But that means that we're actually looking at what's happening
0: yeah, as opposed to
4: trying to make something out of it.
0: Yeah, yeah, it feels good to do it instead of saying, I created it or. <laughs>
4: uh huh. All right. <laughs> or or I look at power. me, what a grand boy I am because I can see things you can't see. Instead, whenever synchronicity happens, I talk to the students about it immediately. And everybody says, Yeah, that's really interesting that just that happens that way, that we make connections.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: But that's real. It's real because we don't live in an infinite society. We live in a closed environment almost, that we are interconnected. And.
2: Hmm.
0: Oh, now, did we lose him?
2: Something's happened.
0: That's synchronicity. That's- it's magic. <laughs> Lack of <sacred. laughs> That's not magic, actually. <laughs> it's poor quality.
2: Manuel,
0: how are
1: you? How are you doing there? It's so cool that we're talking about this because actually right now I'm doing my bachelor thesis in psychology about synchronicity. So quite a synchronistic thing going on.
0: Yeah.
1: And <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's
2: amazing.
0: Yeah. I just lived through uh, one today, just like a couple hours ago, and that was really cool. <laughs> just tell me about it. How was it? Oh, you're back oh yes. um yeah, tell no. me about my synchronicity okay <laughs> i made myself rice porridge and while i was making it a friend of mine who is in the us was just thinking about it and texted <laughs> texted me at that moment that he wishes he had um some rice right now boiled rice and i sent him a picture of what i'm eating now and he's <laughs> like this is the first time i've ever thought about rice <laughs> boiled rice <never. laughs>
2: And
4: voila. Debbie, to continue answering your question uh, and using the staircase and the analogy and the waterline as to the state of mind a person is in, uh, one can, in fact, become noble Mm -hmm. and return to lay life and be of a great advantage. One of the major reasons that that can happen is normally because the family will need one. But this is actually common and known of, and uh, within the Sangha, uh, and this, by the way, is well known within the Sangha in Thailand. This is kind of the way that it operates, is is that one can actually uh, become a monk and disrobe and become a monk again seven times in his lifetime, because that actually happened in the time of the Buddha that gives people enormous flexibility that just because now there's a difference between leaving the sangha disrobing and going and joining a different religion that's not the same thing but rather that you stay with your how to say it uh you stay in the buddha the dhamma the sangha
2: Mm-hmm.
4: and you continue to associate with them but now you can do it because of uh, family restrictions or other things like that. An example of that was is that I was doing quite a lot of doing of running my mother's family business when she was really really in her advanced old age but, but then she got into an automobile accident she couldn't drive anymore at that time the uh, the manager of the organization had quit. And that meant that I had to take even more responsibility for this or close it down. And I had to make a choice and that choice was is to become disrobed as a monk. Right, so that I could now handle the books because so far I was successful at not having to do the books. Mm-hmm. That even though right. I did the payroll, the payroll was only money. In in, on paper, in other words, I would do the payroll, hand it to my mom, and then the checks were written or the money was taken out and the payroll was done like that. When she was no longer able to do that, that was the line that I made for myself. Now I have to disrobe in order to take care of business. However, there was also some other reasons that were um, in there because the situation that I was in. I wanted to remain close in North Carolina, and that at that particular time, the Lao temples began to have trouble over who owns the uh, the temple property. In Thailand, that's not an issue, because when a place is ordained, fully ordained, the, the deed for that land is given to the king as a present. But it's then administered by the Bureau of Religious Affairs. So all uh, religious facilities in Thailand do not have any political squabbles.
2: Mm-hmm. In the United mm-hmm. States,
4: however, religious organizations have mortgages on their buildings, which means who owns that building in the mi- in the bank's mind became a major issue because people want to say, "Oh, well, I run this temple because my name is on the mortgage." And I want to sell the buildings because now we bought it for 150000 and I can sell it for a million dollars now. Ha ha. And you guys can go find another place.
3: <laughs> and okay. there's corruption. And
4: so, right. And so here I am, a monk, winding up in court suit after court suit, in court. Time after time, the first one I got into was in Amarillo, Texas, and they actually invited me to go out there. Well, now that I'm a monk who speaks English and knows how to handle uh, American ports, that means that every Buddhist court suit in the United States needs my attention, right?
3: <laughs>
4: that was yeah. a good time for me to get out. <laughs>
3: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Right, okay. and, and that, that shows how dynamic um, the Thai system is. They recognize that humans are not consistent and, and that's okay because circumstances change, right? So mm-hmm. um, that flexibility, I think, is something we all could benefit from.
4: Well, while I was in North Carolina, one of the lawyers in one of our meetings just kind of mentioned it. About half the lawsuits in North Carolina right now over is over who owns what church property.
2: <laughs> yep. So
4: it is a major problem as churches begin to close. Right. But it also can be a major property, a problem when the property increases and then there's, there's conflict. But anyway, getting back to the point is, is that is part of the buddhist culture that there is time to go to the woods and there is time to go home and take care of business Mm -hmm. because if you don't go home and take care of business then the whole group of people is going to be suffering and what advantage do you have by going into the woods when the whole town is burning down basically when all you'd have to do is just step in and everything is set right so uh, uh, the whole permission thing is is to move in and out of the Sangha according to choices and abilities that you make. Mm-hmm. So that means then that um, that there are some, on some occasions, some very, very high-quality, high-class people out there in Thai society for some reason or another that they are not all in the watch. Mm. Right. Right. Because even though they got that nobility, another way of looking at it is, is that the sangha can be seen as a hospital. How many hospitals do you know of that once someone goes into the hospital, even though they're cured after two or three weeks, they stay years and years in the hospital? Because they like it. There. <laughs>
3: Nobody likes a hospital.
4: Well, a lot of people like the sangha. Once you get yeah. into it, it's pure <laughs> there's no reason to leave, except there sometimes are reasons to leave, but the reasons are often on the outside, family organizations, business problems, um, rice. In fact, the first time that it happened in the Sangha uh, of the Buddha's time was when a man had to disrobe because his mother was not capable of doing all of the uh, the work of harvesting the rice at the time and she needed him to help with the rice the next year it was okay and she did it fine the year after that okay but then the third year he needed to go back again
2: Mm.
4: and the buddha says fine go do the work that you need to do and when you come back you can take up the robes again
3: yeah
4: in the very beginning in fact the ordination was uh any oh uh echo uh a uh, mm-hmm. in other words come and see for yourself come and be a bhikkhu it was intended to be short term from the very beginning
2: I and think the ordination this-
4: was very easy in the beginning it got more and more ossified and more and more formalized over time due to the influences of ordinary people missing with the sangha
3: mm-hmm.
4: it hasn't remained noble Right. Right. So, that doesn't I mean it became completely not noble. That's the part that most Westerners have a problem with. Yes, the Buddha Sangha started out noble, but it mm-hmm. got really encrusted with ordinary things we can call Buddhism itself. Mm-hmm. But that Buddhism that was covering over the, the actual noble Sangha was more of a protective wrap. And it has preserved and protected the teachings of the Buddha for 2,500 years now. And it was in the time of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa to say, let's let the noble Dhamma out and open for anyone. That this is not an issue of ordination. It, this is an issue of enthusiasm.
0: Yeah. I have a question. Sorry. Yes. So it's seemingly easier for a for a man to go to to the wad and stay there, um, even if he has kids. Now, for women, it's a little different, because once you absolutely,
4: have kids, absolutely, but it should not be in the regard that, of uh, in fact, we just talked about this, that if a man has young children then that would be, even in Thai society, a prohibiting factor for him becoming a monk. In fact, there's a whole lot of reasons that, in fact, one cannot become a monk if he is in debt. He cannot become a monk if he is wanted by the authorities for any reason. Okay, so if somebody wants him because of money or somebody wants him because he's done something wrong, in other words, the song is not a hiding place. This is not sanctuary for wrongdoers. Mm -hmm. and a man has obligations to his children, that if he is going to become a monk, while, say, he's got a 10-year-old son, or maybe a 10- and an 11-year-old kid, or eight and nine, something in that range, he better make very sure that his family is okay that he goes and becomes a monk for a while, a while, and that his kids are going to be very, very well taken care of also remember that every time mm-hmm. that a monk ordains in thailand one of those things is is that you've got to have your mother's permission to ordain
2: wow. and your mother well, just... is not
4: going to allow you to ordain if you've got a 10 year old child
2: oh.
4: right. and so there is social stuff built into that
2: mm-hmm.
4: That the Westerners, they don't even know about all of these tiny little details that are, are there because none of you <laughs> have been to Thailand to actually go through the ordination process, which is when you find out about all of this stuff. Okay, you've got to be in good health, uh, in, a, in a good mental mood, you've got to have your mother's permission, you've got to be completely debt-free, you can be broke, but that's not the issue. But in fact, the uh, the Bhikkhu Sangha has been big with the immigration uh in other words they're both organizations within the government the bureau of religious affairs and the immigration department work very closely hand in hand to make it easier on the westerners who are ordained but they're also closely inspected and they don't have to do any of that stuff with the ties they let the Thai society take care of all of that
3: Mm -hmm. so that again points to the boundaries that we were talking about those social boundaries and um psychological boundaries that are needed to make sure that people are go people cultivate at least a positive attitude if not at the level of enlightened beings right Mm -hmm. but once once that's taken care of i think then um uh, monks or um student monks are probably given more of flexibility regarding what's right or wrong. And, and the boundaries are kind of they kind of start to dissolve. Would you say?
4: Because yes, I not only that, but you're pointing at something very beautiful. And I like that. I hadn't even thought about it this way. And and that is, is that people of wrong attitude are not allowed or invited into the uh, membership in the Sangha.
2: Well, that
4: we that the Sangha wants people of right, ordinary attitude.
2: Mm hmm.
4: Because that's going to be the foundation that they need to move from that into noble attitude.
3: Yeah, because if you give but that wrong
4: attitude freedom of choice
3: impact- to somebody who is who has who doesn't have right attitude, they're likely to harm themselves and others, right? Absolutely. So-
4: that's yeah. exactly what we mean by someone trying to use the sangha as a hiding place for some wrongdoing because they're trying to get away from, not paying their bills, trying to get away from the police. trying to get. There was, in fact, a, a case in the United States where a guy ordained and became a Buddhist monk, and it came to find out that he was wanted by the FBI. Yeah. And he became a Buddhist monk to try to hide from the FBI. Did he, yeah. work?
3: Wow. Right. But
4: it worked for a while, worked for
3: months. Mm-hmm. Wow. So I, well, I, I get the idea. He went you know,
4: down in California and then got into North Carolina and got people within the SONGA to get his transportation arranged for him.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: And he was able to do that all under the radar. And the FBI was out looking for him.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: They eventually caught him, though, because they knew what they were doing right but sangha didn't know that that was something and 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 basically what was going on when he was caught up with and and removed the sangha's attitude about that was not oh no we've lost one of our guys our our attitude was wow we knew that was coming (laughs) right (laughs) we could see that happening
3: Yeah, the the Sangha, I think, is not exclusionary in the sense that people who do not have right attitude are not invited. It's more like, you know, those uh, preliminary practices that people do. So uh, the Sangha kind of encourages people to do the work that needs to be done for them to get included in the Sangha.
4: Absolutely. The only way to join a Sangha is by moving in on them. Yeah. Robes are optional and robes come later, but if you're not living, I lived at Watsu and Mok from um, middle 1983 and I ordained in, in December 1984. I was there for almost 18 months before I ordained. Wow. That's a major right. point, that in fact they require it now. What happened to me was just natural because Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and Acharya Chai and that crowd, they knew what they were doing now they actually have specifications that if you're going to be a monk you number one come and live in a wat for a year as a layman and then number two you ordain for another year as a salmon man, and after two full years one in in yellow robes as a, as a student or as a child monk then you can have full ordination that's how they actually that's the, that's the way that the bureau of religious affairs wants to do it okay. and in the process they've also kind of specified that and put Wat-Pananachat as the target for that. So basically, the way that it could be done is, is that someone would come to live here uh, and and spend their first year at Dam Kiem under Aichan uh, Mehta's guidance and then move to uh, Wat-Pananachat and ordain up there, and mm-hmm. then he could go uh, a year after that and ordain any place that he wants to. Okay. And so that's also the setting up of the Upajaya because who is the Westerners Upajaya is an extremely important piece of information for some reason within the Sangha.
3: Upajaya is uh, like supervisor. Is the
4: the preceptor.
3: Right,
4: okay. Yeah. Okay. That the Buddhist ordination now is a formal formality that requires or let us say it doesn't actually physically require it but that it is so common that it's you know it's an unofficial point that it takes 20 monks for wow. an ordination
2: wow. this
4: is sangha <laughs> i mean this is the, we're, we're talking about family here if you're going to join a family you need to join the whole family yeah and so this- even in places like North Carolina where we have to get, we have to plan ordinations well in advance to make sure that we can get 20 monks as a quorum.
2: Mm-hmm. And so
4: we set up months in advance so that monks from all over the place can come.
2: Wow.
4: By the way, I had about 45 monks at the, at the ordination that I had something to do with in North Carolina. So um, that, that whole thing, is, is part of it, of, of how big a whoop do can we make here. Another one is when a, a temple is ordained. And there and during those years, there was a lot of new temples uh, showing up in the United States. And so I went to the ordination, and two of them in Atlanta, one in Connecticut, another one in Rhode Island, another one in Wisconsin.
2: Wow. And all of
4: that, just a lot of different new temples coming in. And yeah. so they all want that huge number of monks to show up. Um, One of the photos that my mom kept in her bedroom was a big, big display like that that showed me way up in the corner up, but easy to see because I was the biggest dude there. But there had that was more than a hundred monks at that ordination. This was an ordination of a temple in Atlanta. Big Lao temple. And and there everybody. I mean everybody was there. Basically almost all the monks that we could find. Wow. Was at that Huge family. So, big family. So in that ordination for the individual, you have the Upajaya and the Achan. The Achan is going to be, not only do we use the word Achan like Achan this and Achan that, Achan Po and Achan uh, sumeto and Achan Amaro and Achan santikara. all of these Achan's there are using the name differently than is used in the ordination. That basically the word teacher means something, anybody can be a teacher. And we give them that respect because they are the teachers. But in the ordination in Thailand that I'm talking about, the Upajaya was the Samdet Sangharaj of South Thailand, the most important monk in South Thailand, and the Achan was Achan Po. So Achan Po has a different relationship to me than any other Achan, but he is my Achan. He is my teacher, Okay. And mm-hmm. so Achan Po was there in the ordination. i got a lot of photos about that if you guys want to see them. And um, uh K-Satharo was the Upajaya, that they make a point, especially for the Westerners, to have a very, very high ranking, most important monk that they can find to, to be the Upajaya.
2: That right. that's
4: very, very typical, that in Thailand, that uh, ordinations are like that. In fact, There's one story that is unverified. It's just a story that I heard But Bhikkhu Buddhadasa has been the Upajaya for only one person in his entire life. He finally did succumb to political pressures. You know who he ordained? The son of the present prime minister. That's who Bhikkhu Buddhadasa ordained. (laughs) And so that's that's uh, that's how uh that part of ordinary Buddhism is is part of the Sangha. That that the mm-hmm. that the Sangha uses all of this status stuff mm-hmm. to its advantage. Rather right. than saying that oh we cannot be status symbol, that that uh, you're a Westerner, we want the lowest class uh Upajaya we can find because you're a piece of dirt. No, you're a piece of dirt, therefore we want the best Upajaya we can find. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That <laughs> in fact one of the uh, high class upajayas, the really big one, is Achan Panyananda, who was the uh, who is the chief monk, the abbot of Wat Chulapatan, the largest temple in Thailand. The largest what? Like three, 000, four thousand monks stay at his temple. And guess who got ordained under the upajaya of um, uh, Achan Panyananda? Robert Bucknell, <laughs> Santicaro. <laughs> uh-huh. Almost all of the ones who came to Bhikkhu Dadasa, they got ordained in Bangkok and I got the Southern treatment.
3: Oh, I see.
4: So anyway, that, that, that's part of the status of it. But even with that, that kind of in those are the kind of things that glued me so tightly into the sangha that this was my this became my home. That, in fact, that's another reason why they call it a change of lineage. Because we change our lineage from our old uh, birth family. Right. Now our real family becomes the Sangha. The Nachan mm-hmm. nachanpo is my mother and father. Or maybe uh, K the preceptor, would be my grandfather. That kind of thing.
2: Right. Um
4: uh, because he was really old. The last time I saw him, by the way, was in 2002. And at that date, he was 107 years old.
3: Wow.
4: Not a world's record, not well known, but he was an old man. (laughs)
3: Yeah. Wow. I'm pretty sure he had um, he maintained his cognitive faculties better than anybody else could. because he was so aware probably and using all of that uh, repetition and um connections that we were talking about in our previous talk remember mm-hmm. so, yes yeah he's he it doesn't surprise me that he was so well at that point in his life
4: yes that's exactly how it operates is is that bringing that mind yeah that, that wisdom or bringing that uh, um frontal cortex uh, and to putting that to use, to make yeah. to, to bring uh, one in charge of one's life rather than mm-hmm. subject to the the power of the instinctual
3: Absolutely. mind.
4: Absolutely. So anyway, uh, the important part about this this conversation is is that there are also stages above the mm-hmm. uh, the waterline. Yeah, that, that in fact, above the waterline, you will have at least seven stages for the soda pond. A lot of people in the West, especially on Reddit, and there's a uh, stream entries group, uh, the soda pond there. And there's one after another who will come in and say, I'm a soda pond. <laughs> or my teacher said I was a soda pond. Right. Uh, uh, that kind of stuff. So when students ask those kind of questions uh, or tell me that their teacher has said that they were sold upon or all, all of that, the basic thing to do is to start asking them questions because generally the, um, the Westerners are not deep enough into Buddhism to know that, the, that there are absolute stages that a person passes through in the noble path that this staircase that we were talking about is actually very, very well laid out and Mm -hmm. understood. And for some people, you could say um, that uh, the way that it seems to be taught, you've heard this probably before, uh, and that is the the sequence of the word sila samatipanya. Yeah,
3: I think I have a...
4: Yeah. Siva Samatipanya. The Siva actually then is behavior. Mm. And that that's based upon a set of rules, rites, rituals, that when you become a monk that you've got to behave like a monk, you've got to operate like a monk. Well, actually, the behavior and the operations of the monk is to get the, the young man to start <laughs> acting nobly.
1: Because mm-hmm.
4: if he's, has if he's required to act nobly, then that means that he has to think about acting and he puts him in the right thought or right frame of mind. But we can expand that to the point of of saying that this sila that we're talking about does not have to last for years and years that all we need to do is to get the mind uh, right now secluded from all unwholesome behaviors. Which means that's the seclusion part, that the reason that people go and sit down in a meditation hall is so while they're sitting down in the meditation hall, they at least are not stealing donuts out of the kitchen.
3: Yeah, yeah.
4: But I, I, I hear it's you. It's it.
3: often, it's easy to get lost in that behavioral preparation, right? People would often take a self-care day and they would think of going to a spa and driving uh, the way it, to the drive, you know, to to the spa, is often going to be really stressful so that by the time they reach the spa and their self-care day has already been spent half and they're stressed and none of their goals have been met. Exactly.
4: And you think that it's stressful going to a spa, thinking about stressful it is for some people to sign up and and go to a a meditation retreat. People are really stressed out. I mean, Debbie, you know who I'm talking about here.
3: <laughs> Do I? <laughs> yeah,
4: Danny was really stressed out when oh, he went yeah. into that, that retreat. He, he was so stressed out me. that I thought twice about it. And then I said, well, let's let him go. Yeah, but yeah. I was actually on the verge of pulling him off of that, uh, uh, that bus.
2: Oh, yeah,
4: yeah. Say, Danny, you're not ready for the retreat. You don't have the right attitude. You're still in England. You need to chill, baby. before you have the right attitude to go to that retreat so yes that's the whole thing and that's the problem with these retreats is that people go into these retreats uptight and not ready to go they don't think about the retreat is hey i've got 10 days with nothing to do and no place to go and i can just hang out and chill and just enjoy myself but no one goes there with that attitude. Everybody goes with the attitude of uh, things are strange. I don't know what to do. Will I fit in? Can I do the right thing? Am I up to the task? Um, or the other side of it is is that, oh, I'm gonna do a lot of work here. I'm really going to get my mind straightened out. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. everybody goes to the retreat, generally with the wrong attitude. And then at the end of the retreat, when they come out of it, they don't have a continuing support. Right. Because they paid for the retreat. They, 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 they have nothing as a preparation. They come into the retreat. They do the retreat. They've got problems in the retreat. The retreat didn't work out the way that it should have worked out. Yeah. And now they leave the retreat after it's fully paid for. And what do they got? They got nothing. Maybe sign up for another retreat. Now, that's different than the way that it would be in the, uh, in the Sangha, where the young man just wanders into the temple and makes friends and sits down, and they start teaching him about some meditation, and he starts to hang out at the temple more and more, and then he's been 10 and 20 days in the temple and whatnot like that, and he decides to go home, but then he can come back any time that he wants to, because it's all family now. And so, that's so, why the retreat model is not working. It doesn't live up to the expectations that we need in Western Buddhism, is the retreat model is a failure of a model. Right. We need better models.
3: So I think the key words here are expectation. And uh the again, the right attitude would be experimentation, right? So mm-hmm. I'm I'm just transposing to this to a workplace scenario. So um Sometimes we have this idea that when we are going to to our workplace office or whatever, we need to be perfect. We need to be, um, you know, we need to do the task perfectly and that can produce sort of anxiety and restlessness, worry and all of those negative biases. Instead, we can choose to just um, go there as as um, as an experience, you know, just just I'm going to go and see how how I do this task without that expectation of having to do everything perfectly, if we um, engage in the task with a learning attitude that, okay, I'm going to learn something out of it, um, a skill development attitude maybe, then I think it will be helpful to uh, balance out those nervous tendencies with enjoyment, do you think?
4: Exactly. Yes, exactly. Um, But the problem then is is that Um, By the time the student gets to orientation, they're already got the wrong attitude about it. How can we set up the retreats so that the people start to retreat with the right attitude about it? That's part of the problem that I see with the retreats as well as the the follow-up. But anyway, let's not spend the rest of our time trashing Western retreats. (coughs) as opposed to the uh, as opposed to the Asian model of just moving into the what.
2: Yeah.
4: You, you originally had a question uh, yeah. that was associated with your job and there was a particular word that you used.
3: Oh yeah, assertiveness.
4: Assertiveness,
1: uh-huh. Uh, before, um, I think, um, I don't know if I missed it or whatever, but you were talking about Sotapanas and then you started talking about Sheila and then we ended up here.
4: <laughs> oh, you want, want me to go back and touch on, on the seven uh, aspects of what it become needs to become the soda pond? Yeah. Because yeah. I, I can touch on them right quickly, okay? Yeah. The first point is the first step of the path. The first step of the path that is a noble step actually is quite a high bar, <laughs> but it's only the first step of soda pond. And the first step on the path is when the student is far enough within his meditation and skilled enough in practicing correctly so that he knows over and over and over again that no matter what his mind is doing, no matter how uh, clouded or no matter the situation that's forcing him into that clouded mind, like being arrested. When people are getting arrested by the cops, they generally are not their sharpest,
2: Mm -hmm. right?
4: Okay, when we're sick, we're generally not at our sharpest. So this actually takes some um, some training so that we know that no matter what situation we get ourselves into, that we in fact can have that sharp mind. We can pay attention to what's going on. We can live in reality and we're not going to have obstructions. The obstructions of fear, of doubt, of wanting something, of uh, uh. not liking the fact that you're getting arrested and that kind of stuff. It's all what we call hindrances. (laughs) So the first step of the soda pond is when the student has the self-confidence, the shwata, or the right attitude. And that attitude is no matter what happens, I can handle that situation. I'm the boss here. I'm the king. I can do anything because I'm in charge of my own mind. Okay, so that's the first step of the soda pond is the one who has the self-confidence that he can get himself out of any mess that he gets himself into. That's a pretty high standard, isn't it?
2: <laughs> yeah. <that's laughs> and, and,
4: and it all has to do with one's own internal um, attitude about things. And that the Buddha then says that this attitude that I know that I can get my mind cleaned out no matter what, he says that this is noble it is a step on the path, it is um, a super mundane, and by far and above all others, it is not held by ordinary people. Most people do not have that kind of confidence. Very, very few, and often they have the confidence built upon the success of getting away with it. So often this attitude is more of a wrong view and the right view is all, uh, ordinary right view is always filled with doubt. But this noble, budding attitude is no, I can handle anything, even though I don't have the skills to do it. At least I can handle it mentally.
0: Right.
4: Okay, I have so a question. Is, yes.
0: In order to handle something that you got yourself into, any mess that you got yourself into, i I found this um, way of thinking that I am the creator of this whole thing. what that happened to me is powerful. Is that the correct attitude, or am I like, that's taking-
4: exactly right. and And we can use ordinary religious language that sounds magical, where in fact, it's pointing at direct reality. When we say things like, you were created and placed on this earth to be a creator, to be a carpenter, to be a um, designer and manipulator of your own heaven, here on earth. That's your job. That's why you were put here is to figure out for yourself how to create heaven on earth. That's the attitude of a soda pond. Now, it sounds magical in his way of, of speaking, but that's it, is to recognize that, hey, you're here to create your own universe. You're here to create your own heaven. It has not to be given to you. It's to be made. It's to be manufactured. And you've got all the skills you need to do it.
0: No pressure.
4: Yeah. Right. And, in fact, the pressure is what we put on ourselves when we think we can't do it. But when you have the attitude, I can do this, there's no pressure. Or if you do put pressure on yourself, you say, saying, hm, I can handle that pressure. After all, I put it on there. I can take it back off. I can tweak it back and forth. I can judge how much pressure I can put on myself and handle it. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm. Or if you have an expectation of how that heaven should look like.
4: Should. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, this is only the first step of the soda pond, is that self-confidence that I've got this wired, that no matter how obstructed my mind gets, it doesn't matter how bad I get myself into a mess, I can get myself out of that mess mentally right now. Okay, and we can use all kinds of examples of that because we've got all kinds of situations we can get ourselves into. An example of that is uh, is the mother-in-law is yelling at us. Okay, I can handle that. I can give her what she wants,
2: yeah.
4: okay? How about the judge is bounding his gavel and say, you're guilty? Okay, well, I can handle that. Yeah, I probably did it. My job was is to make good friends with this um, uh, judge and I wasn't very successful at it. So of course he's gonna find me guilty. He's gonna be finding me guilty of being unfriendly. Never mind what happened months ago that the cops drug me in here. In fact, the cops drugged me in here because I didn't handle the cops very well.
3: Right. So again, it's, it's recognizing those learning opportunities, right?
4: Precisely. Yeah. That is, in fact, step four. Let's jump to step four. Before, let's visit step three a little bit. And step two has to do with how strong your samanti is so that you can see exactly what the, the, it is, because what we're really looking for is dukkha. Duke of Naroda. And when we come to the point of beyond a shadow of a doubt, we know that that's the only job that we've got to do, which is back to that creator. The only job we've got to do is to make a heaven out of this hell that we find ourselves in. That's the only job that we've got to do. Okay. Then comes so, step four. And so that, that's uh, step-
3: sorry, I'm just going to ask one quick question. So would you say okay. step two is like an antidote to doubt?
4: Actually, step number three actually labels it that way. And that one of the ways that you can say that is knowledge and vision of what is and is not the path. Now, when we say the word path here, we're actually talking about knowledge and vision of what your life is and what it is not. Right. Or knowledge and vision of how to live this moment and how not to do it because how not to do it would be all of the ways that we have been taught to do it. Mm -hmm. All the lies we've been told, all the rules that we have, all of the supposed tos, all the pressures, all of the, um, um, that sort of stuff, is not the path. And that we know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. Because then we can start practicing what is the path, which is this step four that you were asking about. And that step four is then being willing to see our faults, to be willing to make mistakes and to enjoy them as learning experiences. And yet we are taught in our society to hide from our failures, to hide from mistakes. When the child gets uh, out on a 10-point quiz, he gets eight out of 10. The two that he missed becomes the uh, big issue, not the eight that he got. And so we go around looking at losses, we look at mistakes and we say that they're bad and whatnot, rather than seeing them as learning opportunities. But here now we've got a complete change of mind. And that complete change of mind is is that, oh, mistakes, yeah, let's make a few. How are we going to figure out how to do it? An example that I use is um, Edison with his statement about uh, making an incandescent lamp. And by the way, there was a lot of competition. They knew electricity and they knew they could sell a bunch of it to make a huge amount of money if they could only figure out a way of using it. And electric lights was the big item, the big ticket item. And so out of that uh, competition to get the light bulb going, uh, Edison said that he had 1% inspiration and that 99% perspiration. This is exactly mm-hmm. what we're talking about here. When we see our failures as perspiration, that means we see them as failures.
2: Right. But
4: if we look at it in the sense that we've got a hundred things that we got to try out here, we've got one of them, let's get the next one and the next one and the next one, and finally we get through the list and we'll figure out how to do this. In fact, they found out that it was a tar- tungsten filament in an argon gas because argon by the way is a noble gas it does not mess around when things get hot mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's what's able to keep that light burning is just because that tungsten filament could could stretch that's why it was tungsten is because with the heat it goes back and forth but it never collapses or burns out or anything like that because it's never oxygenated because the gas that it's in is noble. So that's a very interesting story about that because we can begin to live our lives that way by recognizing that, oh, if we're going to have a a light go on, we're going to have to try a lot of stuff. Let's use that as a learning experience rather than as a series of failures, Mm -hmm. even to the point of absolute wrongdoing. So in the sutras, the Buddha talks about actually for the student to go to his teacher for confession with the understanding that he's going to learn from that pay the retribution get over it and learn from that mistake
3: right so we switch from the guilt and shame perspective of dealing with mistakes to a learning perspective And, and that and that is likely to increase one's learning ability because you're not paralyzed with guilt or shame yeah.
4: So now we come back full circle about that. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Because we are willing to look because we're not afraid of what we're going to see because we don't see things as failures anymore. We see everything yeah. as a success, which is the right attitude. I can handle this. You see how all of this stuff begins to work together. Yeah. Well, with that attitude, also the, the attitude comes with hot diggity dog. This Dama stuff mm-hmm. is good stuff. I might start living my whole life like this. So that's when the really enthusiastic part of the thing starts kicking in, is step five and six, is when we become really dedicated to the Dhamma. There's really nothing much else to do. Mm -hmm. And then step seven on top of that, then, is what they would call the... uh, The the word that's used in the Pali is actually the word Nandi. But Nandi or Nanda has um, a different kind of quality in the in India. You know what I'm talking about.
2: Yeah, that, a cow. Nanda
4: mm-hmm. is also used for carnal lust and things like that. Well, the same thing is true with the word Rato. Uh, ratana, Okay. So uh-huh. uh, uh, the uh, the the sutta winds up then talking about that step seven of the sotapan is one who is absolutely delighted with the dhamma that that's the only right. thing he really cares about That he's absolutely into it
2: yeah. that
4: he's a, that that it's um it's his delight that he finds delight there in and he's and we're always looking for delight and you can always find the delight in the dhamma
2: mm-hmm.
4: that in fact another way of looking at it is by recognizing that the dharma, when we're talking about it and and speaking about it this way, is really good stuff. It is actually wholesome. And because I
3: was just going to say, by that stage, I think the dopamine connections are so strong that you're practically seeking enjoyment out of making mistakes, learning and exploring more and more. So it's a (laughs) shift from... You got it.
4: Yeah. Right, so can we you, learn to control you, the dopamine in our own mind, but we do it naturally.
0: Yeah. Can you can you be delighted with the dharma while being uh, a layman
4: but <laughs> in the as regular? Is what?
0: Can you reach that? Can you take that seventh step to be delighted with the dharma
4: without being in the robes? Yes, absolutely. Ta-da! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let me say it this way. How many different ways are there to be able to drive a car? At some point in everybody's life, in the beginning we're completely afraid and all of that, but there will come a time when you're driving the car when you're absolutely delighted with the fact that you've got freedom now. Yeah yeah even when driving a car there is an absolute delight with this thing. wow i can drive you know okay well that's the stage of the soda pond is the one who is ready to go jump in the car at any possible moment
3: Mm, all right and that pleasure is i think uh different from these immediate gratifications of you know watching netflix or something like that because it's it sounds like a meta level um, happiness or pleasure or dopamine kick that um, is attained at this level. You are just delighted by the whole process rather than the goal.
4: Uh huh. Now I will ask you something that seems a little bit related. Let's talk about olfactory and air and mm-hmm. other things like that, and ask you also about the what is called the bonding chemical. Or the bonding between a, an infant and her mother when they first meet. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is it possible for anything about dopamine in the brain to have any possible effect upon saliva? The answer, the of, lot- is, of course, is yeah, it's only a couple of inches away. Of course, dopamine yeah. is going to wander into the saliva when you've got a lot of dopamine. Well, isn't tiny droplets of saliva and other things like that how a virus is spread?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Okay.
4: Well, isn't it then possible for someone (laughs) who is full of dopamine to stand on stage and tell jokes and everybody gets a really big kick out of it and goes into a great deal of joy? Yeah. So, in a way, dopamine is spread. The yeah, question is, infectious. can we spread it through the internet, or does it have to be face-to-face?
3: It can happen both ways.
4: I think so. I think that there's there's as much a psychological component, but I do remember having the feeling that just being in the company of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa yeah. was something useful.
3: Yeah, I think, I and think that the it's only way that I can, can talk put it about back, that it, it must have
4: been his outbreathing. It must have been something that was in the air around him that he was putting out.
2: Mm.
4: Mhm. Because there was also something I think about imitation. it, but it was not magical. It seems magical because we've got no way to understand it or measure it or anything like that. But these are the kind of things that are that are possible. That when one person has a lot of dopamine, he can spread it to another person. This is exactly what we're talking about with teaching the Dhamma, that people, when they are listening to the Dhamma and absorbing the Dhamma, they're having almost completely wholesome thoughts. When they're asking a lot of questions, that's not necessarily the case. But when the students are really listening to the teacher teach the Dhamma, then they get it and they get it in a way that now their mind becomes in a complete wholesome state which means they're on the way to first jhana just by listening and paying attention. When the dopamine is out there also, that means that they begin to pick up on that on the psychological level. They begin to gladden and having happy thoughts, and so you can actually talk someone into first jhana, and you don't have to call that hypnosis. (laughs) Yeah. But, But first jhana is actually possible through the teaching, in fact, at least two of you are in the first John right this very minute, because you could tell. I mean, it's like, yeah, this is really good. Feels nice, okay? okay. Yeah. So, this is this is. Some, it a, took a me part.
0: a while to get here, in the first. Yeah, <laughs> it took me a while. Yeah, this,
4: this it's delightful. It really is. So when you get that delight, that delight. Is it part of the first jhana? Is that it everything is just so delightful? Everything is so marvelous? All right so the first jhana in fact, and the sodapon are interrelated deeply that in fact the sodapon is one who is of the full fruit of sodapon is one who is practicing first jhana quite a lot And if he's lucky, he can catch it when he's not.
0: Right. What is what is quite a lot? What do you mean, like daily basis? Are we talking about several times a day?
4: Well, when the mind wanders away, how long does it wander before you see, aha, there you go? <laughs>
0: I see it immediately, only it almost, I feel like, oh, I can feel that, that slipping away, and sometimes it's hard to, to come back to get myself out of it. But I feel like this connection is faster now. now-
4: but that becomes the, uh, here's that point. Uh, we Referring back to the Eightfold Pole Noble Path that we've talked about so much, and this is the issue of right effort. What is one's right effort? The answer to that is, is that one's right effort is a skill to be developed so that when we first start practicing, it's a lot of effort because we're not skilled at it. Mm-hmm. Um, An example of that would be like carrying a heavy load. That when you first, as a child, you pick up something heavy, like daddy says, hand me that wrench or hand me that hammer. And the child picks up that hammer and it's really heavy for that child, you know, maybe both hands to pick it up and hold it. Or maybe a coffee cup like that for a young child is heavy. But for daddy, he grabs that hammer and he's pouring it around. Okay, so this is the point about one's right effort. But the effort comes not just with muscle strength, it also comes with dad's attitude because he knows he's handled the hammer many times before and he's expert at it. And so his attitude makes the handling of the hammer easy. This is when a right effort becomes skillful, it becomes almost energetic. So that the child who had trouble handing daddy the hammer once Daddy's got the hammer, he can go bang, 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 bang like that, and he's mm-hmm. he's expert at it. He knows exactly what he's doing. Okay. Question. This. Is, mm-hmm. Yes.
0: Um, uh, I almost have this feeling. I always want to try myself. How long I can stay in that that uh, uh, bad state? I would say, like there's almost like a, a dare in this.
4: Okay, now here's the thing. When you start to come out of it, air how long you can keep it going, when you start to come out of it, can you congratulate yourself for how long you were in? Or do you posit yourself for coming out?
0: No, I'm like, okay, it feels much better than now. And then I go back (laughs) and I'm like, how long can I take this? And then then I can, like, this is so bizarre. Mm -hmm. You, you,
3: You remind me of that Um, go ahead Debbie yeah you remind me of a conflict I had so I was uh, trying to watch my mind uh, wander from wholesome thoughts right and during the meditation I was like initially I was like okay my mind is going away I'm bringing it back and then I got confused because I was like am I watching my mind wander off? Like when I'm watching my mind, am I not also doing something? Am I triggering wandering my mind by yeah. watching it? Yeah. I was like, whoa, what's yes. going uh-huh. on? I was like a little. Right.
4: Oh, and, and here's the wake, oh wake up gosh. with that is, look at all the confusion I'm manufacturing right now when I could just yes. be relaxed instead.
2: I, I eventually came back to that. Seriously. I
4: don't have to figure it out. That's the whole quality that we're yeah. looking at is you don't have to figure it all out. Yeah. That you all need the all the knowledge you need is enough knowledge to really enjoy the moment. So you're not agree.
2: In,
4: okay, So in fact, what we can point at here is, is that in this system that we've been talking about, I've actually covered three of the fetters. I know what I'm doing here. Okay, but in the Buddhist um, uh, cosmology or anything, uh, there are actually ten uh, fetters or ten um, asava uh, or kin kalesa. There are two different words for it. They seem different. One word is kalesa, and the kalesa actually can be seen as a rope or a fetter or a bondage or the um, let us say a um, even a birthday present that's tied up with a bow the tying up with a bow that's it okay that's the fetter we tie things up with bows now the other word is asaba, and the word asaba has much more to do with an outflow like a wart or a pimple or an obstruction on the skin you could think of it as a pox a blackhead a pimple an outflow these are things and then in fact in that analogy that's an actually a good one because when people have a bunch of blackheads or pimples on their face and they go to a dermatologist does the dermatologist say okay you're they're gone no one at a time either with a needle or with his fingers or maybe a little thing like this. he's just popping one at a time one at a time one at a time, in this mind moment, one more after oh, one unwholesome thought, just one more. Got that one, too. Oh, isn't that a beauty? Wow, that was up big one. Got white stuff and a little, a little blood on it. Yeah, we can bump it. Okay, and one more. And so we can pick up these afterthoughts as that. And, the, the by the way, the last one on the list is ignorance, again, the ajiva. It seems like that we start with ignorance. We have it in the second noble truth. We have it as the foundation of the teacher And what do we wind up with? At the very end of the tale is still ignorance again. But this time it's got a different influence on it. This time is, uh, in fact, this is where we find out what the middle path is all about. Because too much ignorance mm-hmm. leads into dukkha. Yeah. But... There's always an end to it because you cannot know everything. You just can't know everything. In fact, uh, in here's something that I just saw in the news, just as an example. They have they started the survey because they began to notice the stars were disappearing. Now they go back and they've done the research in the past um, hundred years or so of astronomy. Seven hundred stars in the Milky Way have just disappeared. They're gone. Mm -hmm. And that's not even part of our cosmology. We didn't expect our stars to just disappear. And yet they have, but we don't know why yet, okay? This is just another level of ignorance. There will be no end to human knowledge. Mm -hmm. Just no end to it. But we, as children in our schools, are taught that if you don't know, you're in trouble. You've got to answer the questions. And so we get into making stuff up rather than learning to be at awe with what we don't know. It is absolutely amazing all the changes that have happened in psychology. And I really haven't studied psychology in 50 years, but when I did, I had it down solid and i got a really good foundation but look at what's happened since then they're getting actually buddhist (laughs)
2: yeah
3: i i I can't help i have to point this out so it seems like um towards the lower um rungs of the stair it's like encouraging people towards more deliberation right
2: and then Anybody
4: else lost Debbie skills to be? Uh, uh, yes, I, I saw you, Drew, but Debbie and uh, uh, uh Anya uh, and Marcel all faded out.
0: Uh, and now
4: I still see now I see David. Debbie's back. Now I, I see, see everyone. I see
0: everyone.
4: Marcel, are you moving yet? Yes, I see him moving. Not much, but he's moving. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so we're back. <laughs> De- Debbie, the floor is yours.
3: Yeah, so um. Like I said, uh, it seems like towards the lower rung of the stairs, it's an encouragement towards more deliberation, towards more um, conscious choice based behavior. But when we come full circle to ignorance, it's also uh, pointing out that we cannot control everything. So if we zoom out, it's more like a balance. We learn, uh, develop a skill, but then we learn to accept the fact that that particular skill is not always going to be effective. Do you think that's
4: exactly so? So what we need now is to learn the definition and how to apply the word enough. Ah, right, yeah. Now, when is enough enough, okay? (laughs) That's the way that we look at it. In some cases, some things are just not ever enough, like the next breath. I'll take another one, thank you, and Mm -hmm. another. (laughs) But eventually, even that will be all this next breath is just going to be too much work. Right. Right. That's exactly how people died on crosses and that's exactly how people die in the hospital bed from morphine is this next breath is just too much work, too much effort. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think I'll I'll forget this one. I'll, I'll give this one a minute, <laughs> even if it kills me. It me All these jokes about death. <laughs> 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 okay, so in, in that regard, we can recognize that um, actually there's a story about how important this is because, uh, as I told you before, part of Achan Poe's training method with me, partly because of lack of English uh, on his part and lack of Thai on my part, but he would set me up. The, the kind of ways that they would set me up were different than the ways that you hear about in Japan, but in, in, the, in the Zen tradition, the I teachers often set up the student, like right? slamming the door in his face at particular times and other things like this. Okay, So Bikku uh, Achanpo did this with me, and one of the things that he would do, would he'd come and stand outside my cootie, and I don't know how long he'd stand out there, but he'd stand until I got the load of the fact that he was there which meant that I had to start waking up and start looking because I didn't want my teacher to stand out for an hour while I was fiddling around and not paying any attention. He was quite capable of standing there for an hour just to see how long it take for me to wake up. So this is one of the things. another one, uh, just so much. I mean, I'm so fond of him. I've got so much to say, but another one was that he would sneak up on me. Out of the blue. And walk past me with a word. Now, sometimes that word would be "tatata," which is the Pali word for be here now. Wakey wakey. I just got I just walked up to you. You I was behind you. I walked up to you and whispered in your ear and you didn't even know I was here. Wakey wakey. And so I do that with my family. <laughs> I do that with my eight year old daughter. I'll sneak up on her on a regular basis. Why? Because I learned that from my teacher.
2: <laughs> but another one that he would
4: do when he would sneak up would be he would just come and just say not sure and just walk right off <laughs> not sure okay to teach that point of uh, this is an investigation don't come to a conclusion don't rely upon knowledge rely upon investigation keep looking mm-hmm. Assume that you don't know. Assume that you're not sure. and it is worthy of an investigation, which mm-hmm. is completely different than doubt, because doubt is when we don't know and we're afraid to look. Yeah. We're afraid of the answer. We don't want to know.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Then it's, right. Here's a good example of that. In a horror movie, this happens in every horror movie. They're playing really weird music, and someone, like a young lady, or maybe a teenage girl, is walking down a hall that is dark, and they're playing this kind of music, and everybody in the audience is saying, don't go down that hall, don't go down that hall, don't go look to see what's going on, you know, <laughs> that's a feeling that we have, don't look, stay afraid, don't, you know, well, it's dangerous down there, don't look, mm-hmm. and often in those things, when she does go through that door at the end of the hall, there's nothing there. It's a letdown, it's it's part of the buildup of the the scene, and so this is not the dangerous moment. But the the movie makers, they know how to control people's feelings like this, okay? So this is that point. This is an amazing aspect of doubt, is because we do not do an investigation, because if we did, that would dispel the doubt. That's why we wanna actually, in our practice, to change our doubt into curiosity. Why? Because curiosity is willing to look. Doubt doesn't want to. Doubt's got fear in it.
3: Mm. And and that highlights that okayness that you were talking about, that supreme okayness, because doubt has that quality of, you're not gonna be safe. You're not not okay. The curiosity is like, I'm okay, and I can take the risk of looking.
4: Right. Exactly. Exactly. Back to Eric Byrne. I'm okay here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that okay chorale that he invented is just so powerful in this regard. Uh, are we going to be okay enough to treat everybody else as if they're okay too, even when mm-hmm. they don't think so?
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Is everybody going to be friends here or am I going to go around saying I'm okay but you're not Okay. But most of the time, they go around the other side and say, well, I'm not okay, will you please help me? Maybe you're okay.
3: Yeah.
4: Or the worst of it is the criminal, which says, well, I'm not okay, but neither are you, bang, bang. (laughs) 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 And so... Uh, yeah, that that treating each other as okay because we can feel okay, on top of the world. We're the winner here. We've got this wired. We can handle this. Which we, means that we can bring this conversation, if you will, back to the original definition of of that word that you were using, assertive. Right? Is that the yeah. okay? Yes, that- the word assertive, by the way, has somewhere built into it the word sure. That when we're assertive, some asserting something, that's because we're sure of it. Mm -hmm. Okay. The question is, is that if we are assertive, how are we going to be uh, received? Sometimes we can be assertive and received well, and sometimes we're assertive and we get attacked. Yeah. Okay.
3: Right, Uh, and that's the trick there there lies the um, you know the okayness we have to be okay to let people be defensive about their own issues so it doesn't matter if I am assertive or not if I'm not received well that should be okay do you think
4: Yes, and because it's okay, we can use that as a learning experience so that we can continue to try things. But if yeah. it's not okay that we fail because we're too absurd, we go around saying, Oh, I was so absurd and I screwed up, oh poor me. Okay. <laughs> I mean that's <laughs> that's the way that we expect it to happen is is that when you're too absurd and and you fail because of whatever reason, that the answer to that is okay. We're in charge of this machine. We can we can tweak it. We figured that out. In fact, we can actually see people as they're in the process of turning around. I mean, you know how fast psychology works and that things don't happen. Everything blows up at once. I mean, even a bomb doesn't just go off all at once. Somebody had to go put that plant that bomb set the timer, go find the explosive, get the battery and put that thing together. And we do that kind of stuff. So even if somebody explodes over you being assertive, it didn't happen all at once. He was already a ticking bomb. So we need to see that too. So we have to plan on when we're going to be assertive and under what conditions and whatnot. And one of them is to make sure that our assertions is not because we feel threatened. That the real assertiveness Mm -hmm. is when we are absolutely sure because we keep investigating. In fact, that's one of the reasons why we want to listen to our um, people that we're being assertive with is because they may have some new information. But if we're so bent on getting our way, then we're going to perhaps screw that up. And so staying um, uh, in the flow and, and listening things, because as you can tell, I often will refer back to students the things that they've said earlier in the conversation.
2: Yeah, but I
4: always will use where the where the students have started as a as a point to. You know, sort of like uh, uh, I learned this on uh, by watching sea hunt. Let's not get into it, but under the o- ocean, if you're looking for something, the thing that you want to do is point a stake in the ground and then circle around it and make a bigger and lighter circle. But you always leave that stake in the ground
3: right okay. so like a so so reference
4: it, point right and so in this conversation it's always been about assertiveness and so we've now come around full circle back to that word though we've been dancing around it by going off yeah. onto soda ponds and going off onto uh, all kinds of places but it really has to do back with this issue of are we going to be alert and awake enough so that mm-hmm. we can handle the situation
2: mm-hmm.
4: wisely handily Where I'm okay and he's okay. I do not have to be assertive because I feel not okay that he's winning, and so I've got to jump in and try to win the case. Oh no, if I'm feeling uh, like I'm losing the situation, the uh, the, the trick that I use, and I've I've done this for several times, it works really well, and that is, well, I need a pee break right now. I'm going <laughs> to the toilet. <laughs> I need to get I need to get rid of something here. <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah. I was There's just about kiss. to ask. <laughs> <laughs> right, and then you take a break from being threatened and feeling all those emotional um, turbulence within you. Yeah, completely.
4: Right. And then get yourself back together, and then come back into that meeting and let them have it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. No, I have a question. What would be the best what like I know the the excuse of going to the bathroom, but you really like there's a conflict happening, say within a small space, how do you correctly leave? Because last time I did it, it was not pretty. I just <laughs> <laughs> it was dramatic um, so actually. I was like, Oh, I thought I was good enough, but no, I was so I was so so angry and I just slammed the door and walked out
4: <laughs> yeah but you came back too soon i guess is what you're saying
0: no 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 actually i did i did fine i walked around and it was fabulous that i left but how do you leave correctly like how not correctly i'm saying how do you leave without making it even worse or like making i don't know how, how do you
4: know it was made worse
0: because then I, didn't speak, I didn't speak to my aunt for like the whole day after.
2: Well.
4: Did she cool off in a day? <laughs> yeah. If you had stayed and <laughs> argued with cool. her for yeah. another 10 minutes, would she have cooled off in one day or would it have taken a week? These are the things we don't know. Yeah. So you're trying to outguess mm-hmm. the road not taken. Rather than recognizing that when you are in a tense situation, the best thing to do, and in fact that there are so many places in the sutras where this is the recommendation. When it is hot, get out of the kitchen. When you are holding a hot rock, withdraw your hand from it. Yeah. Yeah. When, when, when you are in a, an argument with someone, do anything you can to get out of it even if it looks like a small social pas. to get out of the conversation that's probably going to be much better than staying in and making a big social pas.
0: so so wait so i was i'm actually judging myself on how i walked out right now like i'm actually giving yeah, myself
4: it's to congratulate yourself for walking out <laughs> <laughs>
3: Well, and and if you wanna if you wanna do it more skillfully, then something that I do is I call out uh, whatever I'm feeling. I say, uh, I don't know why this argument or this discussion is bothering me a little bit, so I'm gonna take some time off. Can we catch up later? That's a very neutral thing. And you're telling uh, the other person. Psychologists
4: that- get away with that. <laughs> you need yeah, to be a little right. bit more polite <laughs> in, in normal society. Psychologists can get away with being that blunt. Because
2: uh-huh.
4: basically what you just said is, you just tick me off and I got to get some space or I'm going to clobber you. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
3: Yeah, yeah. But, but the person opposite is not going to feel threatened. So instead, if you say, you're pissing me off, they're going to immediately be defensive, right? Yeah. So
2: mm-hmm.
3: I find it useful to say, I am bothered by it, so I'm going to cool up."
4: Mm-hmm. Right. And what and the words that can come out are something innocuous, something mm-hmm. that's intermediate, something that's obvious. like uh, um, uh, one of the ways of doing it, by the way, uh, in a very simple way is, is, would you like to get a coffee? Here, let me buy you a coffee, and then we can distract them, and while Mm -hmm. we're walking to the coffee machine or whatever, we can change the subject. That's one of the ways to do it, is to get a diversion. If you're in a hot conversation with somebody, change it. Change it. As soon as you recognize, because this is exactly meditation, isn't it? That when you see that something unwholesome is happening in the mind, you put something wholesome in the mind, okay? And if you need to make uh, take a hike to do that, then go take a hike. i got to go to the bathroom right now. I've been, you know, this conversation has been so interesting. I really want to do it, but I got to go. I got to go. And then pff, you're gone. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're not blaming him for how bad you feel or anything like that. You're, It's a call of nature, by the way, they call it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah.
4: And so that's that's why uh, a potty break is often a really excellent um, way out of a tense situation. Yeah. That's
3: a good advice, Tamarata. I'll keep that in
4: mind. I, another one would be, and this would be a silly one, and maybe people would even see through this one and there's, oh, I've got to go feed the parking meter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that's another one that can be used. Oh, I got to go put some money in the parking meter or, or whatever like that. But anything that's that's not to do with the conversation that we're in. Let's get out of it by blaming something else on the outside, because in fact, you're doing yourself and the other person a great favor by doing this. Remember that this the teaching of the Buddha is not about honesty, 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 no. This is about Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Let's get out of this Dukkha. Even if we have to tell a little white lie to do it, let's get out. And we want to tell a little white lie because the truth is going to pick this person off. We want to give him more Dukkha with the, with the truth. You know that much about him. Okay, so this is where friendship and wisdom override these harsh rules about thou shalt not tell a lie. Mm-hmm. sometimes. Uh, a, a small lie is very noble thing to do. It takes some wisdom, though. We have to look at what we're doing. But getting out of an argument, anything to get you out of an argument is the right way to go. Yeah. So feed the talking meter. Got to go feed the dog. <laughs> 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 Got to go for the potty break. Oh, the mailman just arrived here. Let me go take care of the mail. Anything. It doesn't matter what it is. But if you're in a tense situation and you have bad feelings about it, then allow yourself to have a break so that you can get away for three or four minutes. Take a deep breath. Reassure yourself of that first step of the soda. I can handle this. I know I can handle this. I got tense. That's why I got out of it. Now I'm not tense. I'm ready to go. Yeah
0: you yeah. know what uh, my grandma used to do she, when there was an argument she was like oh my heart
4: <laughs> I was thinking that that's a good <laughs> one right old people can do that <laughs> 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 Then, in fact in a hundred years ago women would use uh, swooning to change oh, yeah. the topic yeah. yeah they'd like, oh that's too much for me oh, and I now the whole topic has changed because I'm now trying, everybody's trying. taking yeah. care of the <laughs> <laughs> yeah so these diversions to get away from it rather than feeling that we have to protect ourselves so that's one whole area of assertion Mm -hmm. that we can by step or get past by getting out of the situation rather than feeling like that we've got to stand there and defend ourselves right that's where most assertions are is trying to defend ourselves because we're feeling like we're under attack but if you're really sure that it's actually the truth it's not me they're attacking it's the truth yeah. that they're attacking now we can friendly find a way of um speaking of the situation in a friendly way and then to I think but that's we can... after with the potty break <laughs> <laughs> and but be sure the potty break works because that... you can't have three or four potty breaks in a row <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my God. this All happened right. to me actually um i was out on the street um doing some activism and you know normally people don't like what you have to say when it's the truth um and one guy came up and he got a bit you know angry and i was just like okay i can't like i can't handle this so i was like oh that's a really good question let me you know hey hey my you know so like my friend adam is like hey adam do you know how to answer this question? <laughs>
4: <laughs> that's, that's it. That's, what, that's And then what
1: happened? But this is the great thing, right? This is the great thing. So I was like, okay, cool. I can't handle this. I'll let you know. I'll let someone more experienced handle this. Because um, I tried. I was like, well, you know, this isn't working. So hey, Adam, my friend here has a really good question. And so I went over to talk to someone else. And then the guy followed me. He's like, you're not getting away from me. You can't pass me <laughs> off to your friend. <laughs>
3: <laughs> wow! At the end of all of it,
1: yeah, at the end of all of it, I, I I turned to my friend, um, and he I told him, like, and the, this is this is my friend. He's quite wise, clearly, because uh, I said, oh man, that guy was really angry at me, and he was like, no 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 no, don't take it personally. The guy was angry. You just happened to be around. Yeah. Right.
4: Exactly. He was not angry at you anyway. That uh-huh. you bought that. That was your that was your trip. <laughs> oh, like, anger enough, coming by. here! let me stand in the way and catch it <laughs> <laughs> uh
1: yeah i laugh about it now i mean i laughed about it just as soon as he said that i started laughing about it and then it was like that's yeah.
4: right that's the wake up i mean that's brilliant that's yeah. that's really great i'm glad that you were able to hear because many people he could have said that too and he says oh no he was angry at me I don't know. It was definitely it was, it was
1: definitely not about me. It was definitely it was about, like... You. It was obviously not you, right?
3: <laughs> yeah, he, he doesn't even know you enough to be angry at you, right? Yeah. So,
4: and if yeah. I could make I some of that angry two minutes, that's pretty That's all he needed to know. You were what on the that? wrong <laughs> team. I said, that's all he needed to know. You were on the wrong team. Yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah but He was. so we can say that he was threatened... By um, not getting an answer, and that may have triggered his anger. Right? Oh no! I wasn't
1: so much that he wasn't getting an answer, as well as he was making a statement, and I was asking follow-up questions, and he didn't have the answer.
3: Ah, oh, I see.
4: Okay. Oh uh, yeah. So right. he was very sure and assertive. If you're and going to like... be the wise guy, you got to make sure that <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that that happens a lot, by the way. That's, that's a the method. Yeah. And you know what eventually happened to Socrates, don't you? Oh, yeah. He asked too many the right questions to too many people. <laughs> yep. But he did some good
1: along the way, right?
4: And, <laughs> oh, you know, that's
1: a risk I'm willing to take.
4: <laughs> <laughs> he more or less prevented a war. Oh, well, it, was it was a different long time. Long years.
2: Yeah.
4: I didn't know that. Yeah. Basically, what his whole point was that Um, he was trying to teach the youth of Athens that they could go have happy lives without joining the army.
1: Poor politics.
4: But the old guard were angry at the Spartans. And the old guard in Athens were trying to raise an army so that they could go whoop Athens. And Socrates was going around town telling all the youth, don't join the army. Don't do it. That's dangerous. You wound up as a war victim. You wind up maimed. The government's not going to take care of you after you're out of the army. Don't join the army. That was Socrates' number one position that he did it by asking all of the students all the right questions. Like, what's gonna to happen to you after you're out of the army? Will you make it out of the army? And people start to think about what's going on <laughs> and they they stop joining the army. Because he was asking all the right questions, and he, then he wouldn't stop asking the right questions. They actually, there was a way out for him. He could have gone into exile. He could have left Athens, or he could have shut up. And he wasn't about to do either one. <laughs> he
1: had the chance to escape as well.
4: He didn't try to escape. That's right. No, they actually, gave
1: he had him the a- chance to. His friends, like literally, yes. were able to get him. Like into, I think, where they were he was being held and is he like, come on, let's go. He's like
4: not nah. even the even the guard was uh, that kept him in the prison was kind of in on it. The guard himself with uh, the prisoner. I mean, he was a prisoner in the in the in the jail and the jailers were willing to let him go. I mean, everybody was willing to let him go. Even the aristocracy that had put him in jail, they were willing to let him go because they knew that he hadn't done anything. He just ticked them off.
2: <laughs>
4: oh, Debbie, you're back. Great.
3: Hey. I know we weren't being assertive, but I had to take a toilet break so- still. So.
4: I know. I was. I was going to make a joke, but you beat me to it. <laughs> 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 Anyway, guys, this has been really a delightful conversation. I really enjoyed it. But it's about time to wrap up. Does yeah. anybody have any parting remarks? <sighs> any any questions or anything? Marcel, it's been really glad that, uh, that you've been on call with us today. I hope you've enjoyed it. You haven't said much of anything. Oh, there
2: we
4: go. Yeah. Yeah, oh, some
0: poor
2: connection.
0: Yeah. yeah. He's smiling. <laughs> yeah.
4: Yeah, 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 that's You're all that matters. <laughs> 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 well, Drew, do you have any parting remarks? That nah, been fun as usual. Yeah, I'm hungry.
1: I got to go. Nature's call.
4: (laughs) Anya, I'm glad to see you again today, too.
0: Well, me, too. I'm very happy
1: (laughs) to see you again. How's your move gone, Anna?
0: So I moved back to my hometown for now. After that, actually, that wasn't Anyway, I'm trying to I'm not trying. I'm planning to go back to the United States. And I attempted to buy a ticket online, and my credit card did not go through because I needed a three, two, whatever step verification process. But that's yeah. another. That's another issue. So I'm still at home. <laughs> not
1: But well, not for long, hopefully. No,
0: I, yeah, I'm planning to do it sometime in October. Best of luck. Yeah, thank you guys. <laughs>
4: No Debbie, did you get your question answered about Assertive? We didn't dwell directly with it, but we certainly no, had them. No, but,
3: it. yeah, the, the entire conversation was, like you said, around it, right? So I got a revision of a lot more stuff, a, more, a lot more than I bargained, but it was brilliant. I love how supportive our community is. Like, I love these, um, you know, how you contribute and give your ideas. It's very enriching. I love it, guys.
2: <laughs>
4: yes, the Dama is just absolutely marvelous stuff. It's quite a yeah. toy to play with. I really love it. Okay, guys, Well, yeah. we'll see you next week or if yes. you want to give me a call.
1: Thank Marcelle, you much. I I'd especially like to
4: hear you uh, privately if you <laughs> want to. We can talk together. Thank you very much. It's Manuel. Though. <laughs> <laughs> you can call him also if you like. <laughs> Manuel. Okay, sorry, but my eyes are not all of that great. I have to go down and look at it. Manuel. Okay, I got that. And, and Drew. That's a really strange way to spell Drew.
1: <laughs> it got
4: at the end.
0: <laughs> yeah.
4: I'm True. glad you it's told not me like because that
0: again, I would Damarato, you're talking about other people's names? Look at yours.
4: <laughs> this is not my name.
0: Well,
4: <laughs> it doesn't belong to me. It, it was a gift.
2: Ah. Yeah. There's, using using yeah, the it
4: deep personality. It, it, I mean, it, it's a prized possession, but it's not mine.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't even know what your actual name is, Damarato.
4: Nobody does. I mean, that's so old.
3: Is it a secret?
4: He's Change sir- of lineage already. So damaratu is all we need.
3: Okay.
4: At one time, <laughs> it was a wish fulfillment.
0: Yeah, call me Bond, James Bond.
4: <laughs> 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 call me Rat, Damarat. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah. Thank you. It was great to see okay, you. Okay
2: guys. See
0: bye. you. Bye. 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 <laughs> bye everyone.
2: Bye, Drew. Bye bye, Annual. We'll see you.